Hello and welcome everyone. I am your host Vincent for the Cardboard Swords cast and today I'm joined as always by co-host Ludwin. He's also my friend. How are you doing today Ludwin? Uh, I'm uh, I'm still recovering from an illness but nothing too bad. <laughs> okay so if you don't hear him next week you know that he died from his illness. So there you have it. Oh. Uh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, Ludwin's thankfully, uh, he's, he's recovering. He's doing well. It's nothing major. It's just like a, it's like a cold, a fever and some chills, you know, nothing too bad. Yeah. He hopefully. has like, he has like a 50, 50 shot of making it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I already have one foot in the grave. The other one's women for life. Hey, you know, some of the best cards in in card games deal with graves you know like call of the haunted premature i mean this is old school Yu-Gi-Oh still but well even even uh new Yu-Gi-Oh, there's like uh, yeah. call, call to the grave i think is one uh yeah which is uh which stops hand traps called yeah. by the grave it's called yeah yeah called by see? The grave, there you go which is still really good but you know i feel weird because we always end up back on Yu-Gi-Oh when it's like hey let's talk about card games so how about that Yu-Gi-Oh? Hey, you know, we just talk from our experience and what we know. So, you know, it's going to happen from time to time. But, you know, thankfully, we, we, we do know some a thing or two about some other card games. So it works out. Speaking of which, today's topic isn't specifically about card games. It's about the rifts between tabletop games. And so what I mean by this, I brought this up to Ludwin the other week. And I said, hey, you know, I feel like I've been noticing that just because someone's into card games does not necessarily mean that they're into board games, and it doesn't mean that they're into tabletop role-playing games. Sometimes there's sort of a rift between these different players, and some of these players are not interested at all in playing the other thing. So as we talked a little bit about this, at first when I pitched it, I'm not sure if you thought like it just didn't exist, or maybe you thought it wouldn't be a topic that we could dive deep on, but then I sort of gave some examples and you're like, whoa, there might be more here than I thought. And so that's a big reason why I want to do this as an episode because I feel like it's not talked about widely at the moment, but this is something that could be talked about widely down the road by other people. And then we can say, hey, we did it first and get like some some uh, points that no one cares Brown- about. <laughs> some brownie points that don't exist, yeah. No, yeah. but I... I do agree that uh, at first I actually did not think about it. Like when you had brought it up, I'm like, no, I don't think this is a real issue. And then we actually sat down and had a small little conversation about it. And you're not wrong. There are small little risks between groups of tabletop gamers because we got to remember we're talking about tabletops. So that encases everything. But then when you dive into tabletop, they're separate little groups. Some groups actually do intersect and some are separate and we're like, no, we're our own thing. And then the players also, sometimes they stick to one group and don't don't go to other groups for multiple reasons. Yeah. And so a lot of the examples that I'm going to bring up is admittedly going to be very anecdotal. Now, I do have, though, a lot of anecdotal examples and I have some more Uh, objective things that can sort of bring up and point to that sort of helps back up a lot of the anecdotal evidence that I have. I, the only evidence I have to, for this is what I've talked about my friends, my own personal experience. And from what I've seen in the areas I grew up with, with how people got into certain areas and also some experience going to other places and seeing how, uh, people stated they got into their their certain field like hey why why do you play D and nothing else 
you know, stuff like that. Yeah, there's also a fourth one, thinking about it, which is miniatures, like the miniature tabletop games like Warhammer. That's what I that's what I was kind of referring to, because uh, those are called war. I would refer to those more as the war gamers, because uh, a lot of games, uh, this is going to fall into a category where we might bring up little later on. A lot of games are trying to invite these players into them. So they're going to use small little mechanics to be like, hey, this is this is something similar to your game. Come over here and have a little taste. Maybe you'll like it and dive into all this other stuff. Yeah, so for those that aren't too familiar with wargaming, it's essentially that you spend hundreds to thousands of dollars on these unpainted miniatures, and then you have to figure out your team, build your army, then you paint your team, and then you have this giant army, and a lot of the games last for hours. Now, of course, there's some war games that you can do little skirmishes that are that are quicker, but in general, a lot of times when I see these war games being played, it's like an all-day endeavor, it's like a massive battle, and it's very expensive. Normally, the starter kits are like 100 plus, and then those are like so weak they get wiped out easily. So the buy-in is extremely high. Uh, and it seems like the type of players that these games attract are ones that want like a hobby to really dive into. It's not something that you can play casually very easily. So it's like you're kind of all in. And I think that's a big reason why someone that plays war games wouldn't necessarily be into collecting board games or playing a trading card game or being too into tabletop RPGs. Because I have friends that play war games and they will play a board game with me and they will play a card game with me or tabletop role-playing game, but that's not what they really do on their own a lot of times. It's it's kind of strictly wargaming. And the other thing to note about these miniatures is that there's a lot of work required to put in them. They're not just a plastic miniature you buy, like, you know, you can buy for D&D. These you have to paint yourself, and then you can even customize them. And they there are different systems for these. Like, think of it like D&D, where, oh, hey, or, or the RPG genre, where it's like, oh, I got D&D, or I got Pathfinder, or... Cthulhu horror or whatever it's the same thing with miniature these miniature war games where hey there's different systems i can try out these different systems but just like dnd and pathfinder and them a new edition of a system can come out and sometimes new support can only be part of that system i don't know too much but i have done research on the miniatures because i'm a miniature painter I have done, uh, I have been to a games workshop and I have looked at product mostly because they look pretty cool for uh, D&D games. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and when he, when he says games workshop, that's the name of the store that carries exclusively Warhammer product, which is a war game. It's the biggest war game in the industry as far as I know. So it's not just a gaming workshop. It's like, that's the name of Warhammer shop. Yeah. No. And, and then when it comes to miniatures, uh, one big difference between like war game miniatures and like D&D miniatures is you can use in D&D, you don't have to use miniatures at all. You can use miniatures. You can use them painted or unpainted. You can use miniatures from Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> Dungeon Dice Monsters. You can use it from Wargaming. You can use it from anything. You can even use pennies. You can use whatever you want with D&D. But when it comes to wargaming, you have to use specific models to represent those characters. And it's a sort of a stricter system that you have to uh, abide by. Yeah, and as they also have like rule sets and stuff like that where, hey, this miniature represents my sergeant. 
my sergeant has this stats. This miniature will always be my sergeant, but you know, or something like that. Or these are my armed troopers and stuff like that. Or, uh, well, a well-known term that people would probably know is space Marines, which is the generic entry point. They you usually try and get people to, uh, jump in on when they first start, but there's so many different systems and all that. And you can paint these however you like. You don't have to follow the color guy, but you do have to use the right troops for the right, uh, the, you know, the right for the right stat blocks. You can't just use a, Hey, I'm going to use this Lego brick. And I said, I'm going to say that's a dragon. You know, you can't do something yeah, like that. But in D and D you could. And so it's very interesting. So that's kind of like our whole tidbit, I guess, on war gaming. I don't think Ludwin and I uh, want to dive much further in that on this episode, but uh, essentially that's the difference there. And what's interesting about this is like, I am someone who actually, you know, I play tabletop role-playing games. I play card games and I play board games. So it's interesting to me that maybe by being a little bit into each of them, I I notice this rift more because I guess it's like, okay, well, I make content and I realize as I make content, like if I make something about card games, it, it will get similar demographics of people, but it won't necessarily get the same people. Like it's, it's very interesting, it, like noticing like what resonates with people and how just barely shifting it over in the same tabletop genre isn't quite hitting the mark you're not wrong because i have a cousin for example he loves card games but if i mention hey you guys want to play a board game he is the first one to say he's out <laughs> yeah it's just it's so interesting and like i went to a board gaming convention a couple weeks ago and I, and i brought up some cards that i was planning on selling because i've been trying to sell some of these extra cards for a while and there was no card shops there. Like, no one there to buy cards for me at all. There was no one carrying Yu-Gi-Oh! at this board game convention at all. Like, it was insane. Okay, I'm a little surprised about that. that they're not Because I would expect at least the big three to pop up, you know? No. I mean, there may have been a little bit of magic there, maybe a little bit of Pokemon, but there was definitely no Yu-Gi-Oh! And if there was magic oh. in Pokemon, it would have only been from maybe one vendor. Oh wow! But if yeah, like you're saying, if it is board games, it it wouldn't surprise me because TCG and board games are two different things. But we do have board games that do that do and combine the two, which we have already mentioned a bunch of uh, the uh, deck builder games. Which, you know, we have already mentioned our favorite DC deck builder and the Cartoon Network variant from uh, Cryptozoic, you know. But there are other deck builder games and they use the same systems that TCGs kind of follow on. Like, yeah, it's not it's not exactly the same as playing Yu-Gi-Oh! Magic Pokemon, but they follow the same ideology where it's like, oh, hey, I, I know how to play this uh, these games. I can put the, that same mindset into this. And that's what I meant earlier by crossover games. This is something that wants to bring those TCG players into the board game market where it's like, hey, I know you like TCGs. Try this. And if you like this little taste, we got other stuff you might like to jump in because there are board uh, board games now that uses cards to evolve the board game state. And, uh, you know, a basic board game, but using cards to keep expanding on it. Yeah, and I think we've actually talked about this 
without even realizing that we're talking about this, uh, and it was, this is off the podcast uh, probably like a month or so ago, but I think we've talked about how certain trading card games have tried to become sort of like a pseudo board game where they might have like a board that you have to follow. Um, or there could even be something like Dungeon Dice Monsters where that's a throwback to, you know, back in the classic Yu-Gi-Oh days, they made like a board game for Yu-Gi-Oh where you actually had miniatures and you'd actually move them on a grid. And it's actually a fairly fun game, but it like it didn't do well by their measures. I don't know. I don't know what their measures were, but it just didn't do that well. And I think maybe part of the reason why is because people that liked Yu-Gi-Oh liked it for collecting cards. They liked trading the cards. They liked building the decks. And Dungeon Dice Monsters had none of that. It was it was completely different in terms of what people liked other than having some cool monsters that they enjoyed. So even though I think Dungeon Dice Monsters is actually kind of a fun game, I think that it kind of died because their main player base is so into trading card games. I agree. I actually read into some information about it because I actually own uh, two copies of the Dungeon Dice Monster set. Uh, it's a fun game. I enjoy it. But the thing is, it didn't get much support. And also, you got to remember, during the Arrows release, like 2003, I think it was, 2004, uh, board games weren't very big. Everything was looked upon as for children. And I think that's the other issue that falls for uh, a lot of these games, for TCGs, for D&D, and for, uh, for um, you know, board games and war gamers. There are stigmas attached to each one where people still think about it that way. Oh, hey, you're playing Pokemon? Isn't that for kids? Hey, you're playing Yu-Gi-Oh? Isn't that for kids? You're playing Magic? Isn't that for nerds? And yeah. I, I understand that some of this stuff is changing. But even board games is still looked upon like, hey, isn't that still for children? Yeah, I would say it's pretty it's pretty widely changed at this point. I mean, you're still going to get people outside of the industry, of course, that still thinks it's for children and stuff like that. But I mean, we definitely have tons of like 30 year olds buying Pokemon cards and like no one seems to like it does not seem out of the ordinary at all. Like like in my store. No, no, I understand that. But it also depends on what area you're in. For example, some adult like with, uh, for example, Walmart's now, like I mentioned before, uh, Walmart's putting their cards behind, you know, uh, they're moving a lot of their TCG stuff behind the uh, cigarette section or an area where it's locked behind where somebody has to go get it. And, you know, some of these people will insult you or make fun of you for, hey, can I get a uh Pokemon booster pack or a Digimon pack or whatever because they don't know they don't understand you know yeah it's funny because I feel like this customer that we had may have felt like I was uh judging him when really I wasn't at all he was picking up some Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon like merchandise and stuff and he he had like something else in there and I was like oh is this uh and, and, and this is a regular customer that constantly gets things I'd never seen him get like this kind of stuff before though so I was like, oh, are, are you like uh, getting this for like a someone's present or something? I can't remember how I worded it, but I basically suggested like if it was for someone else, and he's like, no, it's for me, and he seemed like embarrassed, and I was like, no, 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 it's not, like I'm into this stuff too. Like I'm definitely not judging. I just I don't know. It just it reminded me of that. Yeah. So the other and the thing is with these stigmas, for example, you and me, we talk about Yu-Gi-Oh a lot, and we're both in the Yu-Gi-Oh community in some way, shape, or form, or a little bit. But then when you're in that field, for example, I played Yu-Gi-Oh competitively, you'll you you start um 
you know, you'll have players talking about the other games and you'll hear about the stigmas around other games. And then it's like, oh, yeah, magic is too expensive to get into competitively. And, you know, because that's something I've heard or, oh, hey, there's this new card game out. It's, uh, you know, it's made by so and so. It's not going to do well, you know, because people, you know, new card games, you don't always expect them to do well. And then especially, for example, Digimon being a franchise aimed at children. Oh, it's just a children's card game. Yeah, and didn't you say, too, that for a while you were just into card games and you weren't really into board games, but then you got into board games? And this is something we discussed off podcast. Yeah, for me, because for a very long time, I've only played card games because I got into card games since I was very young and I've never really played board games. I mean, outside of the basic Monopoly, the basic Sorry, you know, and like we were like we were talked about before, these games aren't very highly reviewed either. And these games were not really appealing or fun. So I think that's also what pushed me away from board games. And uh, what ended, what changed that for me is uh, I jumped into board games because a buddy of mine uh, uh, up in Jersey, there was a there was a new uh, shop that opened up. And they were doing board game, uh, board game nights. So he invited me to go with him, and I got to try out these different board games, and ended up learning. Oh, hey, there's stuff better than Monopoly, Sorry, and Mousetrap. Yeah, I feel like that's normally this a similar story that I hear from people that start getting more into board games, and it took them a little while. Was that they grew up with their family playing, you know, Monopoly or Sorry, and they're like they weren't into that, and so they think of board games as that and nothing else. Yeah, but that's the. I think that's the issue for a lot of people because there's so many great starter games or great family games. Because the thing is, I understand why a lot of people buy Monopoly, Sorry, uh, Mousetrap. You know, think all the generic ones, all the generic Hasbro games. F- first, they're easily they're easily obtained at almost any. Any, you know, any local store. Oh, I can go to Target and buy Monopoly. I can go to Walmart and buy Monopoly. Milton, yeah, it's Milton Bradley games. That's what it is. And, uh, or they're owned by Hasbro. But um, the thing is, they're so easy to find. But if you want to find something a bit different, like Elementies, Zombie Dice, you have to go somewhere that sells, a you know, more variety of games, which is either going to be a game shop, either online or in Barnes and Nobles in a lot of cases nowadays. And not everybody wants to go to those stores. Oh, I don't want to go to a specific game store. I don't know, you know, or they don't even know if they have one. And then looking online, are these games fun? Are my children going to like these if you're buying a game for the family? Yeah, so this is a a bit of a pivot, but I wanted to bring up, like a, another example of sort of like these riffs going on, which is if you look on like YouTube or anywhere on social media, at least from what I can tell, a lot of a lot of pages or channels that cover TCGs don't really cover board games. And people that cover board games aren't really covering TCGs um, or tabletop role playing games or war games. It seems very segmented in that way. Yes, like for example, I've I've started watching uh, Warhammer videos where they just talk about the hobby in general, and they never they never really mention other 
they don't mention board games. Board ga- it's like board games don't exist for them. They don't mention card games unless they're talking about a store where they sold all three products at the same time of or something like that. And they're talking about the players. But then the thing is, you always end up forming a uh, a stereotype of a certain player based on the bad people you meet from that game. Yeah. Oh, look. Look, it's the Yu-Gi-Oh players. They're here to steal stuff. Oh, hey, it's the Magic players. They're here to argue. Oh, it's those board game players that are just going to cause trouble. Yeah, and going back to that board game convention, I'm remembering there's a guy I talked to at a table, and he was selling things, and he actually said that he was shocked because he was bringing tons of like D&D miniatures that he had custom-painted, and he said most people there that were like looking at them would say that they look really cool, but they had no idea like what a beholder was or like what these different monsters were and he was like you guys are board gamers and you guys don't know like what a beholder is that's crazy so it's like he was blown away and he was bringing this up to me that like everyone there that he talked to didn't seem to know what D was or like they weren't in, into it or like knew much about it yeah the other thing is now we're getting into board games and uh tabletop rpgs I know that tabletop RPGs had a sigma, a really bad sigma with them for a long time, especially D and D with the, uh, the, the satanic scare of the was it nineties or eighties, uh, or um, is it further back? But either way, <laughs> there there was a scare. The satanic a, panic. Yeah, that's what it's actually called, the satanic panic, and uh, you know, so the, everything, you know, so much stuff was deemed deemed like oh no this is bad and all that stuff and a lot of tabletop rpgs fell under the same boat and even if it wasn't dnd a lot of people would just think of it as dnd and then the other thing is uh this was yes this was looked as it looked upon as a nerd game or a geek game and stuff like that and people sometimes can't look past those stigmas so oh yeah i love board games oh you want to try dnd oh no i don't want to try that geek thing even though nowadays people seem to make it you know dnd seems to be a lot cooler now than it was back then <laughs> yeah it's like a cultural thing now it's like a, it's actually i feel like it's fairly mainstream at this point like they reference it in the new spider-man film it's in stranger things ten like tons of like big movies and and uh, series like Cr- reference it. Critical Role made a show based off their D and D campaign, which funny enough is actually a Pathfinder campaign, but they converted it to D and D when they did, when they went online. Yeah, I remember them speaking about it because they said that D and D five E is a lot easier to uh, do stuff in, especially for a live stream. Yeah, but. You know, don't want to go too much down that rabbit hole, but I, so, <laughs> yeah. so another pivot here is we, uh, another rift is I've actually heard from friends that like, they just hate the idea of booster packs so much and collecting, and I guess not having what would feel like a finished game that even like, to me, I love like playing like sealed formats or playing like limited formats or like, say if there's like four different Yu-Gi-Oh decks that are built that are meant to be played against each other, or like even Yu-Gi-Oh structure decks. Uh, which you, you would hope and assume that they have relatively somewhat similar power level. Like I love the idea of even just playing those against each other as like a sealed or limited experience. But there are people that like board games, but I guess that like mentally in their head they're thinking like, well, 
you know, there's so many other cards out there that it just turns me away from even playing this limited experience of this game. It's just also, it's like, if we, let's look at deck builder games. Not everyone wants to go pick up a pile of cards and build something. Not everybody can see three cards and say, hey, I can make a combo with this. While maybe someone like you and me who have experience in card games might be able to say, all right, if I get that card and then that card and then that card, I can combo up my deck and maybe make it an equipment deck or maybe make it a superpower deck or whatever based on whatever deck builder game you're playing or however your systems work. Because I do think that's people, a good point. Yeah, because some people just want to be like, what are the rules? What do I do? Let's play. Not, all right, uh, let me read what this card does, and then let me read what this one does, and then let's see if they work together or what additional rules apply. Because sometimes, you, you, I know you and I have spoken about this, but this, a lot of card games have ruling issues and that's another can of worms, and not everybody wants to deal with everything like that. Yeah, I could see how a trading card game would feel more overwhelming because of that, because there's a lot more intricate rules interactions that could come up. And I, I never really thought about it before as far as the deck building aspect, where they're just like, I I enjoy deck building so much because it, it's you, it gives you like a way to be creative if you want to be. You're saying like, oh, this is a card that not many people play, but I see some value in it. Let's see how good of a deck I can make using that card. That's the thing I personally like to do a lot. And I enjoy that so much that I've completely neglected the idea that anyone that, that like someone could possibly not enjoy that at all. <laughs> but but yeah, no, it makes sense that someone could just be like, I don't want to build a deck, I don't want to customize things. I just want to like play these like standard decks, which I mean still kind of goes with what I was saying, because you could do like Yu-Gi-Oh structure decks and not worry about building them at all and still play those against each other. But so I think there's like a lot of moving pieces to that. But I do think like not wanting to build a deck and not finding value or fun in creating your own deck uh, would be a piece to why someone wouldn't want to play a trading card game. I think the other thing is also uh, the time investment it takes to learn some of this stuff, too, because with a board game, you learn it. You can learn a lot of times you can learn this stuff pretty quickly and keep on playing and you're playing it with a group a lot of the times. While with a lot of card games, there's a lot of intricacies you have to learn. And then depending on the deck you're playing, doesn't matter if it's a simple deck, there's still stuff you have to learn, especially when you have to deal with weird interactions. Because I, I keep thinking of Yu-Gi-Oh, but I know Magic has some cases where certain decks have to work certain ways. You want to do certain things. You want to hope certain cards pop up in your hand. And not everybody wants to be playing that, hey, am I going to get lucky? Am I not going to get a hand of all lands? It's weird am because I, I, feel, all... I feel like yeah. playing a casual card game, or let me put it this way. I feel like playing a card game casually is easier to do than a lot of board games. But when you start playing at a more higher level, the card game would be more difficult to play. So, for example, if you bought like two starter decks in Magic the Gathering or two structure decks in Yu-Gi-Oh um, or Digimon or something, if you just opened up whatever they call their structure decks and you played those, I feel like that would be easier to learn than a lot of board games uh, that I see that are like the big box board games, at least. I think it depends on the person, though, because remember... It's uh, going like what I'm saying about combos is not everybody wants to read every individual card 
some people just want to be like, what's the rules to the game and let's play? Because look at Monopoly. I, I throw some, I roll some dice and I go around the table and I just buy property. If I land on a community chest, I, I read the card, what it does, and I keep on going. I don't worry about anything else. Yeah, I and mean, card- it, it does really depend on the board game. I mean, I guess I'm thinking there's a lot of board games that people recommend to me that my me and my playgroup do not enjoy because, like, there's, like, a like pages of rules, and it's, like, pretty complicated. And, like, I'm pretty into the industry, and, like, I still can't understand some of the stuff I'm reading. Oh, no, I understand. I've, I love reading rule books. I love sitting down and reading how to play a game. And my group does, too. So it's become a thing with my group where we'll learn to play a game together. But not every group enjoys that. And I don't recommend that for every group. Because the thing is, a lot of people just want to jump in. How do I play this game? And let's go. And that's normal for, especially when you're inviting somebody new to your group who's never played a board game. Choose something simple. Choose a choose a game that is enjoyable and has at least some expandability, which I mean, like, lets them play in multiple different ways or something so they can get a feel of, hey, this is board games. Nothing like, hey, want to play Monopoly for, the, for five hours? No. <laughs> never uh <laughs> so uh a weird another like uh anecdotal thing is i remember having a co-worker who was interested in playing spell slingers but told me to talk to talk to her whenever it's sold in booster packs because she would rather instead of buying the entire game of spell slingers or like an entire playable game she'd rather get booster packs and just like throw together those cards and like see what she pulls and so i just thought it was interesting because at this time when she told me this, this was probably two years ago, in my mind, I I was under the false belief that everyone would rather have, like, the entire set than, like, pull random cards constantly where you could get duplicates that you don't need or don't want um, and just kind of have that lottery function. But over the last two years, I've really seen and noticed, and I've also kind of put more value in, like, how fun it is to open a booster pack not knowing what you're going to get and having that chance to pull something exceedingly rare and and not looking at that as being a less than experience as to buying just the whole game itself. And I'm, I'm mostly comparing this between... There's, so there's another type of trading card game. Well, I'm not even sure if it's a trading card game, but there's another kind of adjacent thing called living card games or expandable card yes. games. Yeah. yeah. And so at that time, I, I just, in my mind, I was like, that's clearly superior which a living card game or expandable card game, the reason why there's two terms is because Fantasy Flight trademarked the term living card game. So any other living card games can't call themselves living card games. They have to call themselves expandable card games. But I digress. Um, The expandable card game essentially is, it's like if Yu-Gi-Oh! was an expandable card game, they would release every set where you'd buy the whole set and you'd get at least one of every card from that set. So there was no pulling random cards. It was like you get everything you need from that set. And so I was like, well, that clearly seems like a better strategy. But we've actually seen over the years, trading card games, uh, not only were always doing better, but are doing better now than ever before. And expandable card games actually seem almost more like a detriment if you release your game that way. Not necessarily, though. I have to look more into that and the statistics and stuff, because I might release a card game that's expandable or a trading card game at some point. But I now see a lot more value in trading card games and what they offer than I did before. So the reason I see for trading card games doing better than living is so we've talked about formats before. And the thing is, 
with when you re- announce a new product for your se- for your game, doesn't matter if you're Digimon, Pokemon, whatever, Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh. At, when you announce a new product coming out in two months or three months or four months, players get excited because that's going to change the game a little bit. With these living or expandable card games, you're stuck in the same format for long periods of time because they won't release any additional support for a long time. And that's the goal of those games. But the bad thing about that is, A, the price to ent- price into entry is a lot higher because you buy a whole you buy the whole set of new cards. And once you do build your deck, when the next set comes out, once you know how you're going to play, you may not even need every card in the next set. You might only need a couple. So now you're dropping more money to buy it than what you need the cards for, in a, if you get I, what I'm saying. I don't know that that's actually it because I don't know that they... I don't. First of all, I don't know if it is more expensive because, for example, I bought like an $80 box of Yu-Gi-Oh product and... I barely got anything I needed. <laughs> it was it was a terrible box. And so if I needed to kind of fill that out, even if I bought singles, um, I feel like that would be more expensive than buying the entire set. Now, I could be wrong about the prices of a living card game. Like maybe I'm completely off. Um, I, I don't know. I felt like a lot of the sets come out for like $60. I mean, it depends on the set. But I, I mean, I feel like it's cheaper than a box, a booster box of Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! or Magic, I guess is what well, I'm getting at. It it depends because the other thing is, um, for example, I have a virtual world deck right now in Yu-Gi-Oh. So if uh, if a new if the next set comes out with stuff I want, not every not every card is going to be a, a secret rare and ultra rare. So I'm just going to buy what I need and that's it. And that's usually where I save my money. Oh hey, I only need this five these five cards in total. It'll cost me twenty bucks. Okay. I do understand your point, though, where uh, cards could be a, a secret rare and it could be cost $80. It could cost a, the same price as a set because there are card cards that that does happen to. Well, for example, how much is your virtual world deck worth? Like if you were to sell it for market price value? Uh, I've lost track. Well, I mean, just like a rough estimate. I would estimate, I'm going to say $80 right now. Okay. Well, so for example, I'm looking at at least one expandable card game set and you get everything you need for that set for $60. And so it seems, it just seems like you're able to get that cheaper because like while like with what you're saying is true, if a new set comes out and there's a single card you need, you could buy that single for maybe a dollar or however much it is and it not be that expensive. But just, I don't know. I just feel like overall the expandable card games are probably cheaper, but it doesn't matter because people want to buy booster packs or buy sets and, and try to like there there is a there's a factor that goes into trading card games or there there's a huge segment that love collecting and love that random chance. True, you're not wrong. And the thing is, it's uh, no matter what you get, you get to keep. Because, you know, oh, hey, I pulled this. This is mine. I get to keep this. I think it also helps generate content. It's like, oh, look what I'm about to pull from the set. Or like, oh, what can I get from this box? Or, oh, man, or even with your friends, it's like, dude, you pulled my favorite card. Can we trade? Whereas like an expandable card game, it's like, oh, well, you can't do a video about being excited about what you pull because everyone's video would be the exact same. Everyone's pulling the same exact thing. 
No, you're not wrong about that. And the other and then, point you brought up was the uh, there's the length between releases. But if that was the issue, they could just speed up the releases if they wanted. Like if if it's like okay, well we're doing bad because we release every six months, we need to release every four months. Then like that's something they could change. But I feel like I don't know when the release timing is for expandable card games because I haven't played one in that way. But I feel like if that was the main issue, then that would be something they could fix. I think the other, I think I don't know everything about expendable card games or living card games. I just know I've heard of them. I know some of them, and I also I don't know what it is that keeps them around right now, because I I just keep hearing everybody keeps wanting to make a TCS. TCG style card game because we've talked about how there's a rise of so many card games especially on Kickstarter and it's like why are all these trying to follow the TCG model what works about the TCG model that apparently the living card game and expandable card game can't fill I think I think it has to be entirely the idea of you can't trade an expandable card game very easily it's not built for trading it's not built for hyper excitement um, you know, a lot of our culture, you know, here, at least here in America is very much built around hype where it's like for, for a game to do well, it, I mean, if it has hype behind it, it's going to do so much better. And it's so much easier to get hyped when you pull some sort of star platinum rarity or whatever the ghost rares or whatever type rarity that's super hard to get. And I just feel like there's a thing there. And I feel like, I feel like expandable card games tried to correct a lot of issues or a lot of problems with trading card games but did not realize that those issues and problems are actually like strengths in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, they have negative, like there are downsides to it, but they didn't realize the the upsides to it whenever they, they removed it. True. You're probably, that, that might be a really big factor because I know the collector market is very big in Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon and magic where people will buy cards because, Hey, nostalgia. Yeah. Not only that, I mean, there's, entire podcast based on just like pokemon collecting or yeah. or there might be like a whole youtube channel just talking about like the stock market for magic the gathering cards or whatever you know it's a I mean, it's a huge thing i watch the uh stock market for Yu-Gi-Oh card prices <laughs> i understand that yeah so i got one final point which is i noticed that over the years you know magic uh, magic the gathering is owned by wizards of the coast which is owned by hasbro they released tons of games, and they've also... So Magic the Gathering, I think, is the number one card game in the world. I could be wrong. It at least seems to be the number one in the U.S. I but think it is. Yeah, I think it is. And they've released several like board games over the years themed around Magic the Gathering. They released one based on some sort of conspiracy thing. They released one that was a rebranding of HeroScape, which is like a miniatures Magic the Gathering thing. I think that was called... like uh, Plant... Battle Plains, of the Planeswalkers. No, Battle of the Planeswalker. My friend had that, and he that's the board game he tried to get us all into. Yeah, but did you realize that those things all die? Like, all these board games that they released die, despite it being made by a multi-billion dollar corporation with the IP of the biggest card game in existence. And so my theory is, is, like, not that these board games sold badly. Like, these all those board games sold, like, way more than any games I've made sold. So I'm not saying, like, they sold badly, but what I'm saying is that they didn't hit the numbers that they were supposed to hit by that company's standards by being a multi-billion dollar company. And I think the reason why is because Magic the Gathering players don't care about board games. It just seems like it just seems like that's the objective truth, is, like, 
like you will have crossover you will have people that like the card game that also like those board games but by and large the, a lot of those card gamers did not also play the board games or else we'd still be seeing the battle of planeswalkers expansions and we don't you know it just didn't do that well they they went on clearance you know like people could pick them up for like like really cheap and you know they just don't do as well And I sorry think, about that. I was about to say, I think we yeah. lost Lude when he died. It's 50-50. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I got interrupted for a second. Yeah, no, but I think that a lot of the board games end up dying also because some of them are rebranding of other board games just using their characters and images. Because how many? Because it's uh, it's easy to go to any shop and see multiple multiple board games and then find out, oh, this is just the same game, but just with batman on the cover because we talked about love letter and yes it's made you know it's made by the same company and it is actually endorsed by them there are copycat games where it's like oh we'll just do what they're doing but use our characters instead of theirs and a lot of times play people are not dumb to that and that's also what can kill a game see i actually think that those do really well though i think when they release a batman love letter there's actually probably a ton of people that like no, no. buy those what I'm not I'm not saying that's a knockoff. What I'm saying is when that sells well because it's just a character, you know, a character change that they're actually trying to advertise. What I'm trying to say is when you're when you're another company trying to rip something else off. For example, uh, oh, let me try and make my own version of Munchkins. You know, when it comes down to that, but instead of using the Munchkin characters, you use your characters. Well, okay. Well, let's so that's an interesting subject, and I haven't thought too much about that. But relating it to Magic the Gathering Battle of the Planeswalkers, you know, that was still sold by... I mean, so that was still sold by the same people that made Hero Escape and the same people that make Magic the Gathering. And that didn't take off with their community that played Magic the Gathering. Yeah, because like we, like we said before, a lot of people who are playing uh, Magic the Gathering aren't into board games because so many all these groups are so stuck in their, their own zones, like in their own circles. And then I don't know how many board games you've noticed, but a lot of them are trying to incorporate elements from like card games or even trying to feature elements from D and D or uh, tabletop role-playing games to try and pull people in. But it's not always easy because D and D the uh, there's so many board games based on D and D now. Yeah, and that could be a whole another thing to look into is like, okay, these board games that are trying to pull into the TCG market or the wargaming market, is that actually a benefit to them or is it a detriment? Because in some ways it might be a benefit to sort of double down in what people that play a lot of board games tend to like as opposed to trying to appeal to like sort of the next bubble over because you you might risk not being able to pull those people in because there's because they're just they just want to be in their bubble. Yeah, that's hard because I know what got me into games, into board games myself, is having somebody just push me in, give me a small little shove, and then actually have a buddy who plays card games with me be like, I like board games too, and play with him. And I found out he only ended up playing board games. Because his own cousin pushed him into, hey, you know what? I like board games. Let's play this board game. You know? And I think is that people just always need a push. Because we talked about the war, uh, the war gamers. And the thing is, 
a lot of times you just need that push to try it out and see if you like it because not every not everything is the same. It's like if we compare Yu-Gi-Oh to Magic and Magic to Pokemon. They're not the same game. They're all going to play differently. And these but these players are so focused on their circle that they'll stay there. Yeah, and this is you know? this is related but maybe a little off topic, but I was thinking about like, okay, maybe the fact that I'm into card games and card games by nature tend to be very especially TCGs tend to be like 1v1 formatted. You, there is some additional rules normally where you can do free-for-all or 2v2. Uh, but in general, it's meant to be, even if you play casually, it's normally like you trying to knock out your opponents. And a lot of the tabletop like board games and stuff I play tend to have that sort of feature where it's kind of more of a, a take that or like let's eliminate the player. But I've realized a lot of board gamers, like a lot of people at that board gaming convention, were playing very like Euro games where like there was no uh, player elimination or it was kind of like working together as a team. Or if there was player elimination, it wasn't very much like that kind of like take that kind of aspect, which trading card games tend to have a lot of. But as I was thinking of this, I also remembered that you and your group, and I'm not sure if it's the same group you play TCGs with as you play board games with, but I know that to me it's interesting to then compare that with you because I know TCGs is about knocking other players out, but the board games you play tend to be more cooperative focused. Yeah, the same group I play uh, my card games with is the same group we play uh, co-op with. And the reason we prefer co-op over competitive is we played each other against each other for so long, and for you know, we know each other how each we, each other likes to play to the point of if we played a co if we and we're gonna play against the same people playing competitive, any competitive style game, where it's like all right, I know your strategy because this is the same way you play every time because people fall into habits they fall into certain holes where it's like this is how they're going to play and i know how they think like you know to a certain extent so i know this is how he likes to play this is how he likes to think yes he might try and change up his style but the thing is the outcomes are going to become so boring for us to the point where we prefer co-op because it's like hey the game is changing and we got to work together to change how we're going to play against this game. Yeah, I get that. So on a la- on the last note, um, what do you think moving forward in terms of these rifts between the different tabletop gaming communities? Do you think that we'll see sort of a more hyper-focused uh, thing going forward where more people can kind of find their sort of niche and then they'll be like hyper focused on that one thing and really dive into that and really feel fulfilled by that one thing. Or do you think it's going to be kind of more of a merging between different uh, bubbles in the tabletop industry and kind of being like more open to playing different ones? Or do you think it'd be kind of like 50, 50 and kind of like just a mixed bag for everyone? I really think it's more of a mixed bag because the thing is, it's also down to the mindset of like something we talked about before is competitive versus casual. Your competitive players, they're going to be the ones who are stuck in their game. They're the ones who, after going to their local card shop, might go hang out with their buddies and keep on playing to practice something new. They'll be the ones who, after playing with their buddies, will go home and do research on the upcoming sets. 
learning on what's coming out, uh, finding out what's popular now to keep beating these things. Your casual players are going to be the ones who are like, hey, they have to experiment. You know, TCGs are something I do for fun. I'm going to go home or let's go, you know, hey, let's go try out this or let's go do that. Your, your casuals are going to be the ones who are more jumping into other stuff. Now, when certain games, like when the competitive players reach a point of this game isn't doing well, let me take a break because every game will reach a point where it's like, yeah, this is too toxic or it's not fun anymore. Let me take a step back, come back later. That's when they might dabble into another area, but it's still 50-50 because there are some players who might dilute themselves and say, hey, this game is perfect the way it is, no matter how bad it gets. And there will be some where it's like, hey, let's try this board game thing. Or my buddy over here says, let's try this D&D thing. Yeah, all that sounds good to me. It makes sense. I think, you know, it's it's hard to say, but I could see it just kind of being the same moving forward. You know, we're going to have some people you know, like myself that likes to dabble and everything. And then, or at least most things I haven't dabbled in wargaming because it seems kind of hard to like dabble in that since there's a big commitment up front with it. I do. I do own some wargaming miniatures and I kind of bought them to, uh, to test things out because they use the same plastic miniatures that most board games kind of use. So it's the same idea in painting them and stuff like that. Okay, well, you can keep us updated on your end, and I'll stay over <laughs> here with my card games and my board games. <laughs> You'll be like, I'm, sc- I'm too scared. You, yeah. you go do, you go do that. No, but what do you think? What I do mean, you think in the future board games uh, or these bubbles can do to try and, you know, try and push players towards them? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe we don't need people to i mean as long as people aren't being judgmental on on others i mean maybe we don't need people to have much crossover i mean i would sort of prefer that because that's how i am and so i think if more people kind of dabbled into these other things i think it would kind of like help me out make me feel a little bit better but you know maybe maybe we don't need that though i mean we we have a ton of people into different things i don't think it's required but there is something that does come to mind because Wizard of the Coast did try and make a and d set for Magic uh, for Magic the Gathering. And I know some people liked it, but it was also pretty... Some people also were, like, confused about it. Because, like, this is Magic. Why do I want D&D in here? Yeah, I think it's worked better for the D&D players. Because it's, it's still kind of D&D and it's fantasy themed. And it's like a new world for them to explore. But I don't think it works as much for the Magic the Gathering players because they're so into like the trading card game. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. It's kind of like, um, like for example, I think uh, Magic the Gathering released a Dungeon and Dragons trading card game set uh, where you use the Magic the Gathering rules to play it. And for example, I think the D and D players, some of them probably got into it and tried tried that out. But I think by and large, most of the fans of that happen to be Magic the Gathering fans that kind of don't mind D&D. And they're like, okay, cool. This is a new way to play Magic the Gathering, but I'm still playing Magic. So I think, oddly enough, the D&D set for Magic was probably more effective with Magic the Gathering players just because they like playing Magic. And people that are fans of D&D are probably fine with the Magic the Gathering set for that. But it's not necessarily bringing a ton of Magic the Gathering players over to D&D. No, I don't think so. And then... 
and then a lot of card games are having new player issues as well, especially Yu-Gi-Oh! Due yeah. to the difficulty curve and getting new people. And that's the other thing that scares some of these other that scares these other bubbles away from this one where it's like hey some of these games are really complicated <laughs> which real quick i do want to say too that even if uh what we're saying is true about them making a a D set in magic and how that wouldn't pull necessarily a lot of D players over to playing magic i'm not saying it's a bad idea because even if you're just grabbing 5% of people and you have like a million players as your fan base, like 5% of that is still a lot of people. And since you own both IP, I'm not saying that it's a bad idea or not worth it or anything like that. I'm just saying that people shouldn't expect like, oh, this has D&D. This will pull every D&D player to play Magic. It's like, it doesn't work in that way. But I do think it gets a, a percentage of people, a small percentage, but a small percentage of a lot of players is still like, it's still probably worth doing. And then and the thing is, they'll tell their buddies, oh, hey, guys, have you tried the D&D set from, you know, for Magic? Oh, no, you no. How come? And, you know, because at least word of mouth does work. And sometimes that's also what gets people into a game. Hey, did you hear about that new Cryptozoic game coming out? Did you hear about the new Digimon card game? You know? It just takes somebody, one friend saying something and being like, hey, let's try this together. Yeah, and like crossovers are a good way to do that, especially if you're a company that owns multiple IP. It definitely helps. But I mean, we even see Fortnite in the video game space. Like they cross over with everything from Naruto to Rick and Morty. And, uh, and you know, they're doing super good, which that's not the only reason why Fortnite does well. But, you know, them having so many crossovers, I think definitely helps. And uh, we've seen it in fighting games a lot. You know, you play Soul Calibur and you can unlock Yoda and Darth Vader or uh, Link from Legend of Zelda and Spawn. So, I mean, it's doing crossovers is a thing that we've seen all, all over the entertainment space and it makes sense. I think it does help in a lot of ways. Um, you won't always get a large percentage of that other fan base, but it definitely helps get people talking about it and pull people over. So, you know, maybe I, I do think we'll see a future with a lot more crossover and sharing of IPs, partially because of, you know, certain companies just buying and owning everything, but also because, uh, you know, I think a lot of businesses are seeing now that it benefits them to cross over and to allow their IPs to be shared more. You know, I saw where um, uh, Card Fight Vanguard, I think is what it's called. I've never played that card game, but they are now doing a crossover with Record of Ragnarok which is a manga and an anime, and they're bringing that into their card game uh, for like a set or something. And I was like, well, that looks pretty cool. So like even they're starting to cross over into things. And as far as I'm aware, they've never really crossed over into anime before. It's really common for those Japanese games to do that because Force of Will did it with Valkyria Chronicles, which is a, a turn which is a turn by turn action game or strategy game. Uh, which was originally on PS3, if I remember correctly, which is now on PC and all that stuff. And then they did it again with Akira Chronicles 3. So it's... I know that Japanese games are more likely to uh, to do crossovers because we we have Warts Weiss or... Yeah. Weiss Warts. Weiss Warts. Okay. So yeah. I did get it wrong. But uh, the thing is also a crossover well, that, has That's to like be nothing but crossovers. Yeah, you know, I understand, yeah. but I'm, I'm bringing that up because, yeah, big example. But then, for example, Duel Masters in Japan has a crossover with Magic the Gathering because 
I don't know if we ever we said this before in the podcast. I know I think I told you before, Vincent, but Dual Masters is actually uh, a simplified version of Magic that ended up getting popular over in Japan, and they just had crossover sets released over there because hey, same parent company, just crossover our own stuff. Yeah, but, uh, and in the video game space again, we've had the infamous uh, Attack on Titan crossing over with Call of Duty. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can you can play quote unquote Levi in Call of Duty, and you can actually use like the scout swords and stuff. And uh, just so you know, though, like Levi looks ridiculous. Like it doesn't even look like him. He doesn't even have the same color eyes. Like it's, it doesn't even look like him. But uh, yeah, so we're seeing tons of crossovers all over the place. Uh, in a but lot of ways, I'm looking done forward right. to it. Yeah, yeah, they have to be done right. And for the most part, I look forward to it. Um, you know, maybe one day for Vindicated, I can uh, cross over some, with some companies and some other IP, and that'll be fun. We'll see. Yeah, hopefully. I, I would love to see what you end up doing if you actually do a crossover. Like, how how do you incorporate their art? Uh, if, you know, what you what would you end up doing with their characters and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, one of my personal favorite things to do like as a game designer is like i like honestly the most fun i've ever had (laughs) is no joke probably like taking like a limitation and trying to figure out like how to creatively represent something with that game system being the limitation so say like okay i have this card game as my as my basis you know how can i best represent record of ragnarok like if I, if that was like the anime or if it was like attack on titan it's like okay i now have the attack on titan ip and i need to port it over to this like tabletop game using these like these mechanics like as a base for it it's like how can i most accurately you know make it feel like you have the momentum of swinging through the air or like slaying a titan or like, oh, okay, this is the armored titan. How can I make sure that he feels like the armored titan? You know, he needs to feel armored. He needs to feel like he can break through walls. You know, all that kind of stuff. Like, for whatever reason, and I, I think that's like the nerdiest thing about me is like I just love like diving into that specifically and trying to do that. Like, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't surprise me because I I know I keep bringing this one up, but like one of my favorite board games is Power Rangers Heroes of the Grid. And the designer, Jonathan Ying, has made like every ranger has a 10 card deck. And he has felt he has made every character felt like they've come from the show. And each card has, you know, has their personality in it. Like, okay, yeah, this is this character. This is how they would play. This is how they would fight based on just a 10-card deck that he's designed for them and an ability that he's given to the ranger to work for the, to work together with the other ones. And it's like, how much thinking goes through to be like, how do I, how do, I do this, you know? Yeah, to me, that's so important. And, you know, I haven't really gotten to dive as deep on that as I want to for some of my games and some of the stuff I've done, but, like, Definitely in some of the games I've worked on and stuff like that, like the notes and stuff I have, like I, I definitely care a lot about that. But I think this seems like a good point to wrap it up. We're around the one hour mark, which is a little bit longer than we normally go. But hey, it's a very interesting subject. It is funny, though, that it looked like a topic that we wouldn't be able to talk about. It ended up being twice as long as some of our other subjects. But, uh, you know, I think it's very it's, it's very interesting. And it's 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 definitely something worth looking at, like moving forward and kind of seeing how the spaces overlap or don't overlap um, and just kind of paying attention to that. I wonder 
I, I wonder in the future if people if people are going to be willing to give these other games a chance because there's so many good board games, there's so many good card games, and there's you know there's some good tabletop games out there to try out. I mean, not tabletop, but uh, tabletop RPGs is what I'm referring to. And maybe hopefully there are some easy to get into war war games, you know, tabletop war games that doesn't take hours to play. Where hey. Vincent, do you want to play a 30-minute game or something like that? Yeah, and honestly, thinking about it, I do think we'll start seeing people kind of skew more towards being more open to these things. Because, I mean, we've seen people being more open in general to card games, Pokemon, um, tabletop role-playing games, LARPing, cosplaying, anime, all that stuff. So I think we'll see, like, we'll still see, like, bubbles, but I think overall we'll see, like, people being more open and trying new things. Yeah, hopefully they blend a lot more. Yeah, I agree. It's been a very insightful conversation, Ludwin. I've really appreciated it. It's been really fun to talk about this because it's been kind of like in my head for a few weeks and I haven't really been able to express my opinions on it. So it was very fun. I, I really appreciated it. No, yeah, I've really enjoyed it too. I just, I'm kind of glad that we didn't de-evolve the conversation into like uh, arguments between the bubbles, like why one bubble would hate the other and something like that. It became more of talking the overall bubbles and overlaps and stuff like that, which I found fun. Yeah, because I mean, if my childhood taught me anything watching the Powerpuff Girls is that I like bubbles. She's the best <laughs> character. So, <laughs> so there we go. Is that really how you're going to end it? <laughs> it's exactly how I'm going to end this this podcast episode. Let us know who your favorite Powerpuff Girl is in the comments uh, or just you know retweet it and share us. Uh, we'd love to know your favorite Powerpuff Girl because that was the entire meaning of this episode. So hopefully you enjoyed the Shyamalan twist at the end and have a nice day. Uh, all right, have a good one. <laughs>